Welcome to Season 7 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $95 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional and retail investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to partners of and friends of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is a multi-tool athlete. He's a venture capitalist, a podcast host, a speaker, a writer, and he coined a term in 2004 that I can virtually guarantee you use in your common parlance. He got his undergraduate degree from Georgetown before starting his career in finance at Chase Capital and then later J.P. Morgan Partners. He went to Harvard Business School and while there wrote an article where he came up with a simple way to express that classic feeling of apprehension where you feel like something's happening that you're not aware of or not a part of. While the concept wasn't new, this gent captured perfectly by coining the phrase fear of missing out or FOMO. Since then, he's been an investor at Pinebridge. He's helped businesses through his firm, Dorigo Advisors. And oh, by the way, has written two international bestsellers about entrepreneurship and decision making. So without any further ado, I'm fired up to welcome in this week's HPS cast guest, Renaissance man, Patrick McGinnis. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm also amazed that you seem to know what Chase Capital was, the way it rolled off your tongue. I was like, wow, this is a throwback. I always say I'm happy it's an audio medium. Nobody can tell how old I am, but occasionally I date myself in moments like that. All right, Patrick, speaking of the history, let's go all the way back. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from originally? So I'm from a town called Sanford, Maine. It's about halfway between Portland, Maine and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Population, about 20,000. How do we get from Maine to Georgetown undergrad? I just wanted... I wanted to go to the big city. I thought I wanted to work on Capitol Hill, and that got me to Georgetown. Amazing. What did you study undergrad? So I was in the School of Foreign Service, and I studied international economics and Latin American studies. Fantastic. All right, so you graduate college. As we mentioned, you start in finance at Chase Capital. Tell us what that was. What, were you, what was your first role post-college? What were you doing? So my very first job was actually working in Chase Securities, the investment bank of Chase in the late 90s, 1998, I started in the Latin America group because I had lived in Argentina in college. And to be honest, I didn't really understand what an investment banker was. I just knew that the money was good. After I was there for a couple of months, I realized it wasn't my environment. I wasn't very good at the work. I didn't really get the point of it all. I just didn't understand it. And then out of the blue, somebody said, do you want to interview for this job in Chase Capital Partners doing venture capital and private equity? And I said, no, I think I'm going to quit finance. I'm not good at it. And they said, just go take the interview. And I went and I was amazed by these group of, I'd never seen investors before. And so I was like, this is a whole different ballgame. And that's when I joined there. So tell me what that business was. We were joking about it. It's not there anymore. But what was Chase Capital? What kind of deals were they doing? So Chase Capital was the captive private equity group of Chase Manhattan Bank. It was run by a guy named Jeff Walker, who has gone on to do a million different things. A fantastic guy. And it was global in nature. So we had offices everywhere from Brazil to Hong Kong. And at that time when I joined, it had traditionally been like a buyout shop, a growth equity shop, but then it got internet fever. And so it was my first experience. We're going to talk about FOMO later. I saw FOMO. We were investors in Cosmo.com. We were investors in just a bunch of like crazy stuff that blew up, some other stuff that didn't, but it was insane. When you think about those experiences, looking back and what you've done for the rest of your career, what are the lessons you carry with you from those days? You know, it's a couple of things. Number one is, and I always say this to people when they're thinking about what they want to do out of college. One great thing about working at a company like that was you just learn what excellence looks like. So you just know like how to format a document so that it looks amazing, how to build a memo or a model that is comprehensive. So just like number one, just hard work 
excellence, a high standard of delivery was one. Number two is I worked with a woman named Susan Siegel and a gentleman called Fred Wilson. Fred Wilson is now the head of Union Square Ventures, or he founded that firm. And, you know, sitting in these meetings, Susan was just like a very strong network person. And Fred was also, I realized a lot of the value add that they brought to the table within the companies that we invested in was just like how to connect them into the right people. So I started to realize the power of networking. I just, I never really thought about that. And because I come from Maine, people don't do that. And then I saw that up close and I was like, wow, I can do this. And finally, I was there for the frothy 2000 sort of internet boom. And so I saw just the really smart people investing in really stupid things. And it's really shaped how I see the world. I just became much more circumspect about how I invest my money. Yeah. Business people are shaped by their first crisis, right? If it was the global financial crisis, you're looking for contagion everywhere. You know, I hear you. Okay. So after your experience there, you decide to go to Harvard Business School. Why was business school the right choice for you at that point in your career? Oh man, this is like one of those things where you're not going to believe me, but I actually, I didn't think it was, I didn't see the point of it what is an MBA? It's sort of like teaching you obvious things. And I wanted to do a degree in economics or something. But what happened was I had FOMO and I saw all my classmates and friends taking the GMAT. And so I thought, I'll take the GMAT. What's the downside? Maybe I'll apply to one of these. Maybe I'll go to Europe, go to some school in Europe and do an MBA. I wanted a change of pace. And that was the plan. And I took the GMAT on September 10th, 2001. And I got a great score. And that I remember just getting that score. And I just didn't have the confidence to think to apply to a school like HBS or a Wharton or something. I didn't know people who had gone to those places. It just wasn't like something that I saw for myself. And when I got my score, I was like, I'm going to apply to Harvard. And then I visited the schools and realized like it's so much more than what I thought it was. It's about leadership and network. And I didn't really understand accounting and stuff. So that's why I went. I love it. Listeners know I love a good origin story. You write an article in Harbus, the HBS publication about FOMO. How did this all come about? Okay, so... I told you I took my GMAT on September 10th, 2001. So obviously I woke up the next morning. I lived in lower Manhattan. We had the 9-11 attacks here. It changed everything. You wake up that morning and you're sort of like, you sort of just think like, I've got to live every moment to the fullest. It's a lot kind of what it's felt like coming out of COVID in a sense. And in this moment of time where there's so much instability, this is the roaring 20s. I've got to just, every minute is precious. I've now realized that you've gotten that wake up call. And so when I got up to HBS, it was such a choice rich environment. So many things I could potentially do. And I just thought this is my one chance. I'm from the small town of Maine. I've managed to somehow end up here. I need to do everything. And so I did. I tried to do everything, every social event, every job interview, every company presentation, all of it. So you were partially election. You were also partially Jason Schwartzman Rushmore joining every single club. Oh, yeah. I was. I joined the sailing club like I hadn't been on a boat. It was just (laughs) it was a lot. And so. As a result, I soon realized, and you'll remember this from your own times, it was stressful. I was overwhelmed. There were too many things to do. I was half doing them. I was constantly tired and sick, hungover and stressed out. And I just realized that it was all fear. And I started calling that the fear of missing out. And I started using that term and socialized with my friends and it became popular in my friend group. And then as I was graduating, I was, you know, I just thought it was what a funny time this has been. I've had such a good time. I want to remember this crazy experience before I go back to the normal world. And so I wrote an article in our school newspaper in the humor section called McGinnis's Two Foes, Social Theory at HBS, which was a total satirical article about the high-class problem of being a student at HBS. And that was the first time FOMO was used anywhere.
Now, FOMO gets more ink than FOBO. That's F-O-B-O. But on some level, I actually think FOBO may be more important of an idea. Define that for us. What is FOBO? And I concur, by the way, especially for those of us who invest and have very busy lives. So FOBO is fear of a better option. It is an affliction of affluence. It's the idea that when you're trying to choose between many acceptable things, you have so many potential things you could do that you don't want to pick the sort of the least optimal one and therefore you delay decision making and value option value in and of itself. And so it's that reason why it's so hard to choose between the Ritz Carlton and the Four Seasons and you know all that sort of crazy stuff. It's just we try to buy a TV on Amazon. There's 900 TVs, right? So it's that kind of stuff. And it really leads to paralysis. You cannot be a leader if you have FOBO. Leaders have to be decisive. Yeah, I love it. We'll get to your writing on decision-making. I think it's fantastic. But let's talk about the rest of the timeline. So you graduate business school, you've coined these great phrases, but it's time to, as you say, to get on with real life. Did you go to straight to Pinebridge then out of business school or tell me on the timeline from there? Oh, Colbert, I love me a good crisis. And so I decided... That what I should do is, well, I went back into emerging markets, private equity, because I had done a Latin America venture capital, private equity. And then I really loved investing globally. And so I joined this little firm called AIG Capital Partners. The group that I was part of was run by this guy called Peter Yu, who now runs a group called Cartesian. Peter, six days into my, he had hired me six days into when I got there, he was trying to spin it out. There was some sort of, I don't know, kerfuffle and he was terminated And then all of our investors pulled out and we went from a billion dollars to much less. And that was my sixth day and I was super traumatized. And then we slowly rebuilt. But for me, it was great because I had a lot of experience and there was so much disarray that I was able to jump in and get very active. Things are going really well. You might remember 2008 when AIG blew up. Well, I was there for that. And so that was like a very, another, I've just had a lot of these in my life, like that formative moment. I feel like you might have investing PTSD, Patrick, and this is amazing. I mean, let's put it this way. It really shaped the way that I move forward and we'll get into that, but two major crises, just watching everything blow up and being like, what the heck? I did all the right things. What, why yep. me? That, that was yeah. exactly how I felt. So, all right, post-crisis then, Pinebridge comes out of AIG. Is that how that worked? What's the, tell me the evolution. Yeah, so Pinebridge was acquired by a man called Richard Lee, the son of Lee Kaixing out in Hong Kong. And it was turned into an independent asset management company that still survives today. I think they've actually done pretty well with it. So good on them. Yeah. And tell us, Patrick, what was that business? So what kind of deals were you doing? What were you up to? So I was in Capital Partners, which was our global emerging markets private equity business. We had offices in Latin America and Central Eastern Europe and Asia and in New York. And in New York, it was a very like poorly structured business, to be honest, because you had like regional funds. And then before that, there was a global fund. But private equity has gone very local. It used to be that people would run out of London or New York, and that's the seat I was in. And it went hyper local, which is super sensible. Like that, that trend makes a lot of sense to me, obviously. But I was in New York, so I was flying in and flying out of Istanbul and Karachi and Colombia, writing 30 to $50 million checks, growth equity checks and fast growing businesses. And some of those businesses did well, but in 2008, our portfolio got super challenged just because we, when AIG was nationalized by the US government, people knew that they could take advantage and it got very dicey very fast. Got it. Okay. So Post-crisis, then help me on the timeline again. You eventually leave Pinebridge. You stay on as an advisor, if I read it correctly, serving on some boards, but Mm -hmm. you start your own advisory business. Tell us about Dorigo. Yeah, so what happened was I took a year off. I took a sabbatical because during the AIG kind of blow up, I had a lot of like stress and I had like health stuff that was a result of that. And I just woke up one day and I was like, this is ridiculous. 
Why am I doing this? I'm miserable. And so I quit my job. I took a year off. I spent some time in Europe. I had saved every penny I ever made because, you know, Maine. <laughs> and so I started advising. I, I had a lot of very poor ideas that, that I failed at. I'll advise startups. Well, they don't have any money. Okay, I'll be a professional angel investor. That's like a 20-year endeavor, right? All these other things. And then I started getting like more substantive advisory stuff, sitting on boards and advising the World Bank and some other sort of more established companies. Well, and you had very robust international experience. Mm -hmm. You're fluent in a bunch of languages. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that I can see how that would have logically made sense. Yeah, it did. And so there we are. I'm making a nice salary living in New York. And then I realized this is nice, but I'd been in private equity. And so I understand that the real money is in the carry and the equity. And so I started just writing checks, little checks, or getting sweat equity in a bunch of different projects, which turned into a whole portfolio of investments all over the world that has done pretty well over the years, actually. That's fantastic. Okay. So you're an investor, you're an advisor, but then along the way, you write these two bestsellers in 2016 and 2020. Now, before we talk about the concepts of the book themselves, let me start with this. Every investor, every good investor I know, you have to be able to write competently on some level, mm. but it's a very different proposition when you have to sit down and actually produce a proper book. How hard was that transition for you? Colbert, I'm going to tell you my secret and I'm going to tell everybody who's listening, but don't tell people because I don't want them to know this. So first of all, I agree with you. Like investors are generally good writers and I would write these investment memos about an agricultural company in Ecuador people would say like, what a great read. I really enjoyed your memo over the weekend. It was such a fun read. I'm like, really, I've made that interesting. And I started just writing for fun after I left AIG for my hometown newspaper in Maine. It was a thousand word little pieces just about my travels, right? What I realized about a book, 60,000 word book is simply 1000 word blog posts, 60 of them arranged in a sensible order. You write one a day. I, mean, I wrote both my books in less than two months. That's how I think about it. So your first book, The 10% Entrepreneur, it's a great read. And let me start by saying the HPS cast can't be bought. This isn't sponsored content, but I highly recommend Patrick's books. The central premise of your first book is to tear down this sort of false binary of you have either staying in a steady job or taking the leap to being an entrepreneur. It's a great read. I'm curious how you came up with that concept in the first place. What was the inspiration for that for your first task? Yeah. So as I said earlier, I was doing all this advisory work and I was like, this is great, but it's like going to the buffet. And when the buffet is closed, you cannot eat anymore. I have no ownership in the things I'm doing. And I knew from private equity that ownership is really the power move. And so I started advising companies, either putting cash as an investor or putting my time for sweat equity. And essentially, I just wanted ownership stakes. And I built this portfolio of tons of different things in it. And all my friends started asking me how I was doing it. And I had seen some other friends at private equity firms investing in things where they had knowledge. And so I was telling everybody how to do this. And I realized actually there was a lot of demand in the market. And so that's what I basically did. I just decided to write about my own approach. And then of course, to substantiate myself, I interviewed tons of different people who were doing this all over the world in all kinds of industries to build up the notion that this was a movement and that we all could be partaking in it. What I thought was interesting about it is I feel like people have this muscle memory or understanding of how to invest in the public markets or put their 401k into things. But the idea of private businesses and investing as an entrepreneur seems daunting. And I thought it was very interesting how it demystifies some of that and creates that sense that that's achievable for people as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I think one of the things is 
so many of my friends from business school, like when I go to reunions or whatever, well, they'll say, I read your book and now I own nine apartments or something like that. And so the beauty, what I tried to do and I think I achieved is I tried to make a concept that was, it's a mindset shift around ownership and about building your own career outside of your day job and being highly diversified because having lived through a bunch of crises, I was like, this is really important to me. But it's flexible enough that whether you want to be a tech investor or a real estate investor or you want to start your own side business, like I give you the precepts and the principles and the toolkit to do that for lots of different situations, no matter where you are, no matter how much money you have. Makes total sense. It's a great read. Again, highly recommended. Your second book, Fear of Missing Out, is I think ultimately about decision making. And in mm -hmm. some level, it's a logical extension. Okay, we've identified FOMO as a thing. How do we get past it? How did you decide that was the right next subject for you to tackle? So I had written The 10% Entrepreneur and I'm traveling around the world doing book tours and things. And I was at this conference in Beirut and it was 2017 or 18 or something. And I was talking to Kevin Ryan, who was the founder of DoubleClick, a big tech kind of wheel in the New York sort of ecosystem. And we were chatting a bit and then somebody came up and interrupted us. And I thought they were doing it because they wanted to talk to Kevin. So I was like, of course, like I'll buy out Kevin Ryan's a legend. And the person actually wanted to take a selfie with me for the FOMO thing. And Amazing. I was just standing there looking at the Mediterranean and a sunny afternoon. And I said, I'm writing a book about FOMO. And then I had to of course, figure out like, what am I going to say? Because FOMO, it, I, what is the angle? And that took like six months to figure that out. Can you just walk through, and I don't want to steal your book's thunder. Mm -hmm. You should read the entire thing. But just maybe a little bit of a high level about the stakes format that you use to streamline decision-making. Oh yeah, sure. Delighted to. So the problem that we have, and this is everybody, it's people who are busy, it's people who just have too much time in their hands, whatever, is that we really struggle to make decisions. We live in a world of overwhelming choice. And as a result, we're stuck and it's just a huge time sink. And so what I tell people to do is to sort their decisions into three buckets, high stakes, low stakes, and no stakes. No stakes decisions are things like, what am I going to have for lunch? You're not going to remember it in three days. And I basically am like chicken or the fish. I flip a coin and it's decided. And you never think about it again. It's not like you're saying chicken or I'm going to eat a shoe because then you just know, right? Chicken or the fish. You're like, I don't know. Just outsource that. Move on with your day. Go for a run today. Yes or no. Move on. The second is the low stakes. These are things that require a bit more thinking. It's which TV, which printer, which shirt. I outsource these to what I call the squad. It's like people in my life or experts, subject matter experts, like the woman or man who works at the store and just say, which shirt do you think looks better on me? And it just frees up time. And then the high stakes are the ones where, and in the book, I have a whole process. These are the ones where you need to do your diligence. You need to think like an investor and put together your whole rationale and your thesis around decision-making. Yeah, I loved it as a framework. Your point about the best leaders are capable of making efficient and effective decisions is right. And it's incredibly easy to be paralyzed. And part of this is sorting out, is this actually a decision that really matters? Or is this a decision that we can just make quickly and move on? And I will recommend for our listeners, Andy Duke, the poker player on the mm -hmm. podcast, who, who talks a lot about behavioral science, about decision making. And I've always, Patrick, been fascinated by her work. And I thought Fear of Missing Out was a great read in that same vein. Um, okay, I called you a renaissance man. We started. I'm sure listeners can get a sense of why I said that. Um, what's next for you? I'm always interested to hear what you're up to. What are you finding inspiring these days? Well, I have a little secret project that I can't talk about in the FOMO sphere that I've been working on for a while, but it's in the media space. And if it happens, it'll be wonderful. So that's one thing. But in the in immediate future right now, I'm about to get on a plane to Central and Eastern Europe. I'm going to Moldova, Croatia, and 
Azerbaijan to look at the early stage venture capital space. I'm also spending Amazing. a lot of time re-energizing some of the speaking I'm doing now that we're out of COVID. And I'm actually having this little moment where I've been running for the last five years and it's sort of like stepping back for a little bit this fall and saying like, how do I want to spend the next five years? You know, I've really been able to do a lot of cool things, but it's like, what does that next five years look like? So I'm, I don't know, if people have ideas, feel free to reach out. I'm just exploring right now. I love it. All right, Patrick, exciting stuff. With that, I want to move to the last segment of the podcast. It's mm -hmm. something we call Best Ideas, mm -hmm. where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently, Best Ideas, because it's our goal as investors to always maximize exposure to those. Patrick, you're our guest. I'm going to ask you to go first. What's your best idea this week? All right. So I thought a lot about this, and this is an awesome question, actually. I love it. So this is a little funky, but you know, we, we can handle it. We like funky. Yeah. Hypnotism. Have Amazing. you done hypnotism? I have not. Go on. Okay. So I have done hypnotism a number of times, and I actually had my hypnotist, his name's Daniel Ryan, on my podcast. It's really about changing ingrained patterns of thought. So let me give you a case study. I have a friend who's an entrepreneur. They almost went bankrupt, very traumatizing. Stella lost her groove, as it were. He went to the hypnotist because hypnotism is about changing ingrained patterns of thinking. And so if you have that little voice in your head that says a certain thing, I should eat this snack, I should smoke that cigarette, I am a failure, I am unattractive, whatever that is for you, the hypnotist can help you to work through and, and change that pattern. And all the things you think about hypnotism, that's a lie. You remember the whole thing. You're just deeply relaxed. And for me, it's been an awesome way to say, there's this thing that I do or I think that I don't like. I want to change that. It works. It just works. Fantastic. Hypnotism. All right. Then as listeners know, I like to be inspired by the guest of the week. Our guest went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service. He's a lifelong international investor, and he's fluent, as we said, in several languages, one of which is Portuguese. In this vein, I also experienced a very real case of FOMO recently uh, when I saw pictures on Instagram from a friend who took a recent trip to one of my favorite places on the planet. So my best idea this week is a travel destination. And if you haven't been, I highly encourage getting to Portugal. First, I love Lisbon as a city. There are only about 10 million people in all of Portugal, about 3 million in Lisbon, but its history as a global power means it feels grander and bigger than you might expect. If you go, I highly recommend a bike tour. It's a great way to see what is quite a hilly city. Um, and you should have dinner at one of Jose Avales's several restaurants. You just won't go wrong. A day trip to Sintra is a must. You literally feel like you're stepping into a Disney movie. The palaces are just wild. And a couple days on the beach on the Algarve coast is not to be missed. Best of all, even before the currency move, relevant for our U.S. listeners, mm. everything's like 20 to 25 percent cheaper than the equivalent trip in Spain or Italy. So in honor of not missing out and in honor of our guest, a Portuguese speaker, my best idea this week is Portugal. You will have a fantastic time there. Patrick, views I, on a Portugal trip. Can I add something to that? First of all, you nailed it. And it is a FOMO destination right now. Everybody went to Portugal this summer. I recommend a restaurant called Pedro Lemos. It's in Porto. Fantastic. Michelin star with, and this is a couple of years back that I went, but I had a dinner with a Porto pairing or like a wine pairing. I think it was like 75 euros. So you, I mean, I think you're right. No, it's amazing. With that, Patrick, it's time to say goodbye for the week. Sincerely appreciate you coming on. Thoroughly interesting to hear what you're up to next. Can't wait to see it. And, and thanks for the time today. Thank you and good luck. Thanks again to our guest, Patrick McGinnis. Check out our show notes to learn more about Patrick and to listen to his podcast, FOMO Sapiens. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen.
The opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the host, Colbert Cannon, and the guest of each episode, and do not necessarily reflect the views of HPS Investment Partners.